1: Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com.
2: Hello again, everyone, and welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Paulette, and I'm an editor at HowStuffWorks.com. Sitting across from me, as usual, is senior writer Jonathan Strickland.
0: Bonjour, mes amis.
2: <laughs> uh, I, don't, I, I wouldn't give a franc for that. Uh, nah.
0: For that. So today french. we wanted to cover a pretty big piece of technology. Actually, yes, we're going to get deep into it. And it's a big piece of technology that looks at teeny tiny stuff.
2: Yep. Yeah. We've had quite a few people say that they wanted us to talk about this and we've kind of put it off because, well, we wanted to talk about it. Yeah. I know it's it's strange.
0: It's the Large Hadron Collider, folks. That's what we're going to talk about. And really, we were going to do a podcast about this about nine months ago, but then a bird dropped a baguette on my head and it just threw everything off.
2: For ages. What really frightens me is that I thought about making that joke and hadn't yet.
0: Yeah. Well, I was like, one of us is going to. It's just going to be a race. All right. So, um, and if you don't know the story about the bird and the bread, we will, will all become clear. Through. Yes, we will allude to it in uh, in a moment. But let's talk about the Large Hadron Collider, what it is, what it does, and um, and kind of get a grip on the whole idea of atom smashers and particle accelerators.
2: Yes. Uh this actually is the latest if you will entrant in a a um, a race that has gone on a scientific race that has gone on for many many years. A yes. game of one upsmanship um that uh that started so long ago. <laughs> yeah. But um Basically, in and, and, and scientific terms, we're talking about the race to build uh, the largest particle accelerator. And it has gone back and forth between uh, the United States and Europe for many years. Yep. And, and, and basically, it seems like um, the United States has sort of ceded uh, this to a, a group of scientists or a, an organization called, that calls itself CERN.
0: Right, which is which stands for the European Organization for Nuclear Research,
2: yes, and if that doesn't make sense why it's that's, because they're that's in Europe, foreign, e, European European yes. they're
0: foreign that's why no. yes to our to our listeners in Europe, I love you guys we're, we're teasing being silly, but yes, the CERN of course also famous for a few other minor contributions to technology like uh, the world wide Web like the world wide web Tim berners-lee of <laughs> CERN being the guy who uh who developed what would later become the World Wide Web. Mm -hmm. So uh, built on top of the internet, Mm -hmm. the network of networks. So anyway, uh, yes, CERN, definitely a uh, pioneer in science and technology. Mm -hmm. They were the ones who spearheaded this whole uh, development of the Large Hadron Collider, which was – you know, it's such an enormous project. It it involved more than just CERN. It involved the cooperation of various organizations, research institutions, countries, Um and you know, it's a, it's really a, a testament to science and to exploration. But it's kind of an exploration that involves recreating uh, conditions that were prevalent immediately following the creation of the universe, but on the tiniest scale we can manage right now.
2: Yes, yes. Well, the scientists seem to uh, think now, and the reason I say seem to is because uh, I I have just a paltry layman's interpretation of these things. Um, they believe that there are these, these particles that existed um, in the creation of the universe that simply aren't there today. And it's not because they couldn't be it's because the conditions just aren't right now, so they want to recreate the conditions that they believe existed right after that yeah um, by uh, accelerating very tiny things to smash together and and basically make bits of of particles that they think uh would be those those things that they're trying to identify so basically there's a roadmap. they think there's a city there and they want to see if they can make it happen
0: right so so let's this really boils down to the whole big bang theory so our whole universe was in a hot dense state really what you went there yes i did go there (laughs) hey some of the characters from the big bang theory were some of my earliest twitter followers (laughs) that's true not the actors
2: The The actual fictional characters characters
0: of the television show Big Bang Theory were following me on Twitter for a while, which I thought – I was thrilled. Uh, Anyway, yes, uh, according to the Big Bang Theory, which is one of the – I would say the most prevalent theory of how our universe was formed. Yes. um, The Big Bang Theory states that there was a moment when – which did not last very long, relatively speaking, compared to the life of the universe – uh, there was a moment when energy and matter were one. Mm-hmm. They were not two different things. Energy and matter kind of were coupled together uh, and then split apart and then developed into what we see today, yeah. into the matter and energy that we are able to observe today as well as stuff that we may not ever be able to observe. Yeah. There was and, an explosion. Yeah. And so there were these these – fundamental particles that eventually became matter. Mm -hmm. And by taking subatomic particles and accelerating them to near the speed of light, 99.99% the speed of light, and making them collide together, you can smash them apart so that they become these even more basic particles and energies that are what make up the stuff around us. So, it's it's like reducing matter that we have today into the proto matter that existed immediately following the Big Bang. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there we'll, we'll get a little bit more into the Big Bang stuff. It gets really really complex and complicated. It goes beyond the scope of tech stuff and it it gets difficult to to explain. I had a friend of mine ask me well, what was there before the Big Bang? I said, that question is meaningless. And I said, why is that question meaningless? I said, because time did not exist until the universe came into being during the Big Bang. If you, according to the theory, as you get closer to the Big Bang, you eventually get to a point where time didn't exist. So before and after are meaningless because those are concepts that depend upon the existence of time.
2: What what's really funny to me is now now that you've reached this point of the discussion, I feel like philosophy and science have become one.
0: And really <laughs> they they have been at that point. There's there is a point where science and philosophy are one because you cannot or at least philosophy takes over. Because you cannot test or observe. Right. Yeah. And you know, scientific theory, this the whole scientific method is based upon the idea that you make observations. And then you project future uh, guesses essentially based on those observations. You test and you continue to observe and based upon those results, you build knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. I mean that's the basic – when you boil it down, that's the basic scientific method. Mm -hmm. And you want to do it in a controlled way so that way you can determine if in fact what you observe is a result of – Whatever the, the phenomena is you're observing, mm-hmm. you know, like whatever whatever state you're looking at now is, in fact, a result of a previous state or if it was just a some, something else, mm-hmm. you know, you mm-hmm. can't say a causes B immediately. You mm-hmm. have to build that case. Mm-hmm. Well, th-
2: that's that's one of the reasons why this is so such an uh, a weird topic in a way, because uh, the, the particle that they've been looking for most famously is the Higgs boson.
0: Yes. Now and, this is a theoretical particle.
2: Yeah, this is the thing. According to the theories, you know, they they're they're the scientists are going by what we know of the universe. And they're they're essentially saying this should be able to exist. And we want to see if it actually can exist.
0: Yeah. That is just such a weird concept. Yeah, it's essentially what you do is you you look at the math and you say, "Well, Based upon our understanding of the universe Mm -hmm. and based upon some mathematical formulas that are far more complex than I could ever hope to understand. (laughs) So I want to make that clear. I'm stating this from the perspective of someone who is interested in the subject but is not an expert. Uh, But based upon the math and based uh, upon our understanding of the universe, we think that there is a particle that we're calling the Higgs boson particle. That would explain why matter has mass. Yes. Because that's a, it's a, it's a question I would never have thought to ask. Like why does, why does stuff, why does matter actually have mass? Why do we have mass in the universe? That's actually a great question. There are a couple of reasons why it's a great question. One is that again, energy and mass at one point, or energy and matter at one point, were coupled together Mm -hmm. and they split apart. So, what was it that did that? Also, the separation was messy. There was alimony. <laughs> also, there was the element uh, – the, the I shouldn't say element. There was the factor right. of matter and antimatter. Mm-hmm. OK. So when you have a mat- a particle of matter encounter a particle of antimatter, uh, they annihilate one another, right? I mean antimatter and matter cannot coexist. Don't, they do annihilate each other. Don't look at me. <laughs> Right? Hypothetical person who knows what I'm talking about yes. who's also in the room? Yes. Uh, so yes, when matter and antimatter uh, encounter one another, they annihilate each other. Mm-hmm. So matter and antimatter both were products of the Big Bang. So there must have been a little more matter than there was antimatter or else we wouldn't have matter. But it would have all been annihilated. We, there, there would be – there would be no us right? Because antimatter and uh, and matter would have destroyed one another. So by that logic, there must have been more matter than antimatter. Well, why is that? It's a good question. The LHC might be able to give us some answers. And the reason why the LHC might give us some answers is again, because by smashing these subatomic particles together at incredible speeds, we can recreate in miniature by several orders of magnitude conditions that were around or what we believe were around shortly after the universe was formed by observing that we could start to draw conclusions of what happened immediately after the universe was formed and why stuff is the way it is these are huge questions and I mean it blows my mind to think about it for more than like to go beyond the surface level I start getting a bit dizzy.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, the uh I was going to get into how the monitor and the anti-monitor deal with all of this and the, the green lantern core, but that's uh, probably a discussion best used for another podcast.
0: Yeah, pop, maybe pop stuff.
2: So they they uh they created this thing 300 That's, feet down yeah uh, that, that only took you know 16 years and 10 billion dollars to come yeah, up with
0: technically it is 100 meters below ground 328 mm-hmm. feet as as Chris was saying uh, it is uh, it's got a circumference of 27 kilometers which is uh, just under 17 miles mm-hmm. 16.8 miles or so. Uh, the entire thing – like if you think of it as a giant circle because that's what the main part of the Large Hadron Collider is. It's an, an yeah. enormous circular ring. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got eight sectors. Yes. All right. Each of those sectors has an end cap that connects it to the next sector. OK. Right? That end cap is called an insertion. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, within this circle, protons, beams of protons mainly, although other uh, – Atomic particles can also be accelerated through the Large Hadron Collider. But primarily, it's its beams of protons reach this speed of 99.99% the speed of light. Now, you might ask, why is it not actually the speed of light? Well, there's two reasons. One is that, according to what we know of the universe, light's the fastest stuff there is. And you cannot equal or exceed the speed of light unless you're light. Like, unless you're a photon, you're not going to do it.
2: Well, put it this way. The traffic ticket would be enormous. Yeah, so the, don't do it.
0: Well, the other reason is because this this uh, um, the facility is so large; mm-hmm. it actually spans the border between uh, France and Switzerland. Right, yes, so which
2: is why you made the French. It has to on,
0: stop for customs each time it goes through, <laughs> which delays it a little. Nice. So anytime it has any duty free stuff, or you know, it's got to declare that it's carrying a certain amount of. Stuff from France to Switzerland, mainly cheese. Then it has to slow down. Mm-hmm. That's all a lie. It that, is that, that customs part. The rest of we've been saying, besides the Green Lantern and other silly asides, totally true. Um, yes,
2: but it's um, it, it's fascinating in a way to think about because um, you know this very big, very expensive machine is necessary to smash tiny, tiny, tiny particles into even tinier particles.
0: Right. And, and again, remember, we're looking for lots of different stuff. Higgs boson is probably the most famous. Yeah. You what's know? and, well, and the one that's made
2: the news recently as of the time we're recording this, right,
0: too. Yeah, Right. The recent news states that we have discovered a particle that fits very closely to what we would expect the Higgs boson to be. So it's not that we found the Higgs boson necessarily that we found something that's promising along those lines. Yes. So again, we cannot say we found the Higgs boson with 100% certainty. Actually, we'll probably never be able to say it with 100% certainty. But we you know, what we can say is that the findings we've discovered are promising along those lines. It
2: it appears to be but yeah. there's no way to know for certain.
0: Right. Uh, and we're going to continue. Neat. Obviously, they're going to continue to do experiments, make sure it's repeatable, make sure that the things that they have observed are, in fact, uh, actual observations and not some form of error. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is all part of science. You know, science is all about you've got to yeah. rep- replicate whatever it is you did to make sure that it is, in fact, a real effect. What did you do? I don't know. <laughs> but beyond the Higgs boson, <laughs> we're looking at other stuff, too, like – for instance, mm-hmm. our universe is expanding. Yes. All right, and uh, and it expands at a particular rate, and that rate is very difficult to explain based upon the observable amount of matter in the universe. So you know, the way that galaxies—we're talking massive, massive systems, not you know, not solar systems—we're talking entire galaxies. The way that they behave seems to contradict our knowledge of what the how the universe should behave. Based upon the amount of matter we believe exists within the universe. Yeah. So we have to figure out why is that, why is that the case? And one of the theories proposed and a very popular one since really the 1990s is that there is the stuff that we cannot observe, Mm -hmm. that is – it's undetectable by humans right now. We don't have the ability to figure out where and what it is, Mm -hmm. but that scientists, for lack of a better term, call it dark matter. Right. So it's the stuff that we cannot detect but that, at least in theory, must exist in order for the universe to behave the way it behaves – despite the way we understand the universe. yes, And by saying, okay, well, what if there's this stuff that we cannot see, but it does exist and it otherwise behaves like matter? Mm-hmm. What if it's out there? How much of it would it, we need in order to balance out the way galaxies do behave and the way we think they should behave? Mm-hmm. And uh, and once we kind of created that theory, there's also a, a theory that, that kind of partners with us about dark energy. Yeah. Which is, you know, again, an energy component that we cannot directly detect. We detect its uh, its effects, but not the actual energy itself. This would account for the way the universe is expanding and the way galaxies move in relation to one another. Uh, And uh, you know, again, this is not a perfect explanation because it really just says we don't really know. These are sort of placeholders until we can figure out more. Well, again, because the Large Hadron Collider will recreate conditions similar to those shortly after the Big Bang, there's hope that perhaps we will find some sort of evidence that supports or perhaps contradicts this theory of dark matter and dark Mm -hmm. energy. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, there's also the wonderful world of string theory, which – I'll, I'll admit to you guys, I mean, like I said, I am not an expert. So what I've been talking about so far is stuff that I have a weak grasp on, right? Like I, I can, I can almost get my head around it, but it's still pretty perplexing to me. String theory just kicks my brain out my (laughs) ear and says, you do not belong here. Never show your face here again. Because string theory is, again, a completely theoretical model that is based primarily upon mathematics that would reconcile what we call the standard theory with uh, uh, something that the standard theory could not explain before. Um, so <laughs> standard theory is kind of our, our explanation about how the universe works, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um and it has uh, – it, it It encompasses three of the four fundamental forces we understand about the universe. Those Those three forces are the weak nuclear force, the strong nuclear force, and electromagnetic force. Yes. But the fourth fundamental force, the one that it does not explain, yeah. is gravity. String theory is one attempt to reconcile everything we know about the universe in sort of – it's kind of like the whole unified theory approach. You might have – you've heard of the unified theory, right? Yeah. This idea that there is – there's got to be an explanation that brings together all of these elements so that we have a working model of why the universe behaves the way it does. Right. Well, the string theory is kind of an approach to that. It is, again, theoretical. It's all based on mathematics. Uh, a lot of the different string theories suggest that there are at least 11 dimensions to the universe. Uh, we, of course, cannot directly observe all of these dimensions. We know, you know, there, there are certain spatial dimensions that we are aware of, you know, length, height, depth, that kind of thing. Yeah. There's also the, the dimension of time, which we, perceive as a linear progression right mm-hmm. though again time is relative if you move you know depending upon the speed that you are moving throughout the universe time is going to pass at a different rate but between you and a stationary observer which is crazy as well uh, also by the way an alternative theory of why the universe is expanding the way it is at the speed at, at what it is mm-hmm. is that it's not accelerating or anything like that. It's that time itself is slowing down. Ah. But we are incapable of perceiving that ourselves. It's just time is slowing down in the context of the universe as a whole. Again, I can't even grasp that. So string theory boils down to this idea that everything in the universe, when you get really, 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 really down to it, is made up of these strings. Mm -hmm. And the strings can either be open, meaning that the ends are free, or they can be closed. So it's like a, it's like a rubber band, a loop. And they vibrate at different frequencies. And Mm -hmm. how they vibrate determines what they are. So a string vibrating a certain way would be an electron. Or what, really, a collection of strings vibrating that way would be an electron Mm -hmm. versus a proton or a neutron or whatever. Uh, the problem with string theory, a- among many other problems, the, one of the big problems with string theory is that you can't make an obs- observation to prove or disprove string theory because it's, it's dealing with something that is so tiny and fundamental that there's no way we can detect it. So you can't observe it and you can't test it, which has led some scientists to say string theory is more of a philosophy – than it is a science because if you cannot observe or test it, how can you call it science? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a mathematical theory that's more in the line of philosophy, uh, which you know, I, I agree—that's a fairly valid argument at this stage. Well, there's some hope that the LHC could perhaps uncover some uh, evidence that string that would support string theory, uh, mainly supersymmetry, and supersymmetry is a step beyond the idea of matter and antimatter. Mm -hmm. So we do know that there is matter and antimatter. So for example, the antimatter component uh, or or, uh, partner to an electron is a positron, which is a positively charged subatomic particle. So positron and electron are, uh, are counters to one another. They would annihilate each other. With extreme prejudice. And then <laughs> supersymmetry su- uh, uh, suggests that there are other counterparticles besides matter and antimatter. They would say that each particle would have a super parter- partner and an anti-super partner, which we would call a supervillain. And that, uh, <laughs> that, those, that perhaps the experiments in the LHC might uncover evidence of supersymmetry, which in turn would be support – for string theory, so there are lots of different things that the LHC is looking for, and how it does it is pretty phenomenal. And as we said, you know, it involves accelerating these these particles at near the speed of light, and using an enormous machine to do it. And um, how that happens is is insane. Yeah.
2: Uh, well, the uh, the collider itself is really one of of three major parts. To to what the the entire scientific uh, machine, if you will, that they're using over there, um, the colliders is one. The uh, the detectors, there are four uh, huge areas where the detectors sit, and those you know are are there to identify the results of the collisions.
0: Yeah, there 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 are four major ones and two minor ones that are kind of. Piggybacked on to the major ones, mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. and then there's the grid, which is the computers, a, a grid that, computer,
0: yeah, grid computer. So a, a series of network computers that yeah. handle all that data and crunch the numbers. Mm-hmm. So when you when we get down, let's get down to the physical way that this system works. Okay. Now, you can't just flip a switch and have beams of subatomic particles traveling at near the speed of light. It actually takes quite some time to ramp up that speed so that these particles are moving at the right velocity to make them collide with one another. Mm-hmm. Um, now, remember, we've got the LHC. It's a big ring. So these different beams are both traveling in opposite directions and then will ultimately converge on one of these detector sites yes. around the ring. Mm-hmm. And at that detector site, you will have your collisions. Uh, so one beam is traveling uh, counterclockwise, and the other one is traveling anti-counterclockwise. As uh, directions I once received for a fan said...
2: I, I I'm surprised you didn't say Wittershins.
0: Yes, yes. Okay. So that would be clockwise and Wittershins. One is traveling clockwise, the other one's traveling Wittershins. if you wonder what Wittershin's is, read Macbeth. Uh the um so the it's counterclockwise. The so these two beams are traveling in different directions. But before they can even do that, they have to be uh, accelerated in separate accelerators. Mm-hmm. Separate in the sense that, you know, it goes through them first and then gets injected into the LHC. Yeah. They are connected to the LHC, but they are each their own thing. So it starts off in the LINAC 2, L I N A C, the number 2, mm-hmm. uh, which is, uh, it, it fires beams of protons, uh, generally protons, although it can be other things as well, mm-hmm. into an accelerator that's called the PS booster. Now, the PS booster uses uh, these chambers called radio frequency cavities that actually push the protons uh, with radio frequencies through a pathway. And that pathway is secured by magnets mm-hmm. because, you know, protons are, ch- are positively charged. So by using magnets in the appropriate kind of uh, magnetic field, you can keep those, those positively charged particles traveling in a very specific pathway. Mm-hmm. Um, then once the, the protons reach the right velocity, the right energy level, really, the PS2 booster injects them into the super proton synchrotron, which to my disappointment is not a Decepticon. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's when the, the synchrotron will actually divide these proton beams into bunches. That's a technical term. And that really is the term that CERN uses. The protons get divided into bunches. Those bunches are about mm, around 100 billion protons per bunch. And there are about 2,808 bunches per beam. Yep. Now, these beams start traveling around the LHC. It takes about 20 minutes for them to to hit that speed of 99.99% the speed of light. And at top speed Mm – a proton will make eleven thousand two hundred forty five trips around the entire Large Hadron Collider each second
2: and and and
0: what was that distance again uh it's uh twenty seven kilometers so twenty seven kilometers uh it takes it does a twenty seven kilometer trip and 11, uh, 11, 27 kilometer trips every second. That's a lot of frequent flyer miles yes, no kidding. Or kilometers, as the case may be. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable, high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT and T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road, and AT and T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to ten devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails.
3: AT&T Fiber live like a Gaginian. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit AT&T.com/hypergig for details.
2: Now, the uh, the the fun part of this, of course, they have to be kept separate uh, initially because you want them to collide when they're at, at, at speed.
0: Yeah, and at the detector sites. Yes. So they have to they have to collide at the right speed and at the right location. Mm-hmm. It also means that you have to make this. This environment as close to a perfect vacuum as you possibly can, because even a single moat of dust floating in this device somewhere would cause billions of protons to collide prematurely. Mm -hmm. So you have to try and make it as close to a perfect vacuum as possible. It also means that in order to get the magnets to be as efficient and fast as possible, you have to super cool them. Yes. Now, uh, supercooling an electromagnet, the the reason why you want to do that is to reduce resistance. Now, resistance is – well, it kind of is what it sounds. It's, it's a conductor's tendency to resist the flow of electrons. Mm-hmm. Typically, we experience this in the form of heat. So as an electronic device heats up, as the electronic components are heating up, it's because – they are resisting the flow of, of electrons through that that whatever component is. Mm-hmm. So, in order to reduce this quality that all conductors possess, I mean, as you know, you can reduce it in different ways. But one of the ways is to super cool an electromagnet. You can reduce the the resistance to to almost nothing. Um, they use not liquid nitrogen. Uh, not liquid hydrogen, but liquid helium, which is incredibly cold. About 1.8 degree Kelvin. Oh, technically we shouldn't say degree, but yes, 1.8 Kelvin. Sorry. <laughs> no, that, that's something else I need to correct in my article. I do have an article about the Large Hadron Collider at How Stuff Works, and it's an article I'm particularly proud of, but as I was reading, I said, huh, I said degree Kelvin. I should have just said Kelvin. So, <laughs> so uh, that's my fault. Send all hate mail to me. That's okay. Um, the, uh,
2: the 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 um, information I got from the scientists over, you know, and doing the research from the CERN website.
0: They said degree it, Kelvin it shows
2: degree. Well, it's not the CERN website. It's um, um a different a different group. One of the uh, groups from the UK that that works as part of the uh, scientists that are doing that.
0: I so. suddenly feel better. Then I had someone once. Chastise me for saying degree Kelvin. That's why. That's well, why yeah, I jumped up. Sorry, um, that that
2: is a good point. But uh, I think I think it's a a useful construct in our heads. So if
0: you're wondering what zero Kelvin is, so 1.8, 1.9 Kelvin, depending on whom you ask, zero Kelvin is zero molecular movement. Yeah, that would be in the deepest, absolute zero? deep absolute zero, deepest reaches of space where there is no molecular movement at all. That is zero Kelvin. It's the coldest you can possibly be, yep. because heat really boils down haha, to molecular movement. Yeah, and if you don't have any molecular movement, you can't get any colder than that. <laughs> um, you can't have negative molecular movement. So, one point nine one Kelvin, which is what I, I had originally seen, but one point eight Kelvin. If you want to know what that translates to in in the terms that we tend to use on a day-to-day basis, that is colder than negative 271 degrees Celsius or, for those Fahrenheit fans among us, negative 456 Fahrenheit. So bundle up. Yep, yep.
2: By the way, the uh, the organization I was quoting from was the Sci- Science and Technology Facilities Council.
0: Uh, gotcha. Well, UK. you know what? They know what they're talking about. I'm going to say degree Kelvin then. <laughs> and uh, anyway, the... the at this temperature, you have reduced resistance to almost a non-factor, which is important to get these electromagnets to operate at the proper speed and efficiency to keep these beams on track and uh, to direct them properly. So they're going faster and faster till they hit their top speed. At that point, you want to direct them at whichever detector site is going to be measuring collisions at that moment. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, when the collisions happen, they happen at about 600 million collisions per second. Now, remember, we we're talking about 100 billion protons per bunch. Yes. So, 600 million per second, that should lead you to the conclusion that not all of these protons are colliding with other protons. And it's true. Because at that level, at that subatomic size, it's really hard to be so precise that you're going to make sure that every proton is going to collide with a proton coming from the other direction. It's just not really possible. Mm-hmm. We don't have that level of precision. So some of these protons, actually a lot of protons, will not collide with anything. And they end up going through the Large Hadron Collider further until they hit uh, essentially – a wall that's designed to absorb protons and it's it's their proton dump. Uh and again, it's not always just protons. There there's one particular uh uh set of 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 um, measuring devices connected to the LHC that's all about iron uh, ions. So it's not just protons, but that's again the 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 typical use for the LHC. So 600 million collisions per second. And then at these detector sites, they have these very, very uh, advanced pieces of equipment that observe what happens next. And they're observing uh, trajectories and uh, accelerations and – well, really velocities, I should say. Velocities, trajectories of various um, subatomic particles that result from this uh, collision and uh, things like quarks – Uh, which are sounds made by Dirks. (laughs) Dirk makes a quark. Uh, no, quarks, which are, uh, they're very unstable. They last less than a a fraction of a second. Well, I guess technically they would last a fraction of a second. They last less than a second long. There goes one. Yeah. Uh, and there's this stuff called gluon, which Mm -hmm. is a mitigating force. Oh, I thought
2: that's what you use to, uh, stick together your muons.
0: Uh, no, I use gluon applied directly to forehead.
2: Oh. Um. You were doing so well without the jokes.
0: Muons, muons, by the way, also, interesting, very tiny little particles. They are, uh, they're negatively charged particles, so in that way they're kind of like electrons, but they are 200 times heavier than an electron is. And also very unstable. Uh, one of the other things that could potentially result from these collisions is, The tiniest version of a black hole I can imagine, uh, which caused some people to freak out, right? They thought, oh, the LHC is going to create a black hole and we're all going to die, which was a silly, silly thing to think. Because a black hole, as we think of it, is a collapsed star. It's an incredibly dense uh, point where – or really (laughs) point is the wrong term too. But it's incredibly dense and has an incredibly strong gravitational pull. Mm -hmm. that light itself cannot escape but you think about that that's the result of a star collapsing in on itself gravity pulling the the contents of the star into a dense uh, a more and more dense uh uh, point really Mm -hmm. we're talking about protons slapping into each other (laughs) at that scale it's entirely different and a black hole generated by a proton collision would last less than a fraction of a second. So you're talking about something that is not at all a danger to human life on Earth. Um,
2: well, I've seen the documentary The Black Hole
0: Yeah, and go. it looks pretty scary. Uh, yeah, the the – it, it, it's just not something you need to worry about. There's also the, the, there's been a little bit of news about the fact that one of the many scientific studies that's connected to the Large Hadron Collider is looking at um, cosmic rays. Mm-hmm. And really it's looking to see how we could create better devices to study cosmic rays uh, out in the universe, which it's really hard to do from earth because the earth's, magnetic field and atmosphere protect us from cosmic rays so you can't really build a device here on earth that can study them because they can't get here yeah um and so there was some worry about cosmic rays which could be potentially incredibly dangerous to humans and could cause lots of problems uh that that would be an issue but again uh not not as as scary as it would uh first sound we're talking about stuff that is is on a tiny scale and lasts, so it, it doesn't exist long enough for it to really do anything other than give us really cool information about how to study this stuff uh, beyond a laboratory environment, mm-hmm. and that's important too because you know the the implications for the study they they fall there's a domino effect it affects other stuff including things like if we ever wanted to look at. Space exploration or colonization uh, beyond what we've already done, you know, manned exploration and colonization. Right. We need to know more about cosmic radiation because this is stuff that we have to protect ourselves against. Otherwise, we could end up having a tragedy on our hands. Yes. Where, you know, everything technologically works fine. We just didn't take into account other. Factors that would be in play in the far reaches of space. Yep. So there are definitely uh, some some applications to this future applications to this beyond just the fact that we have an understanding of our universe, which personally I think is important enough on its own to justify the existence of something like this. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sorry, you were going to say something.
2: Well, no, I didn't know if you had another uh, point to add about the actual no, no,
0: mechanics. no. That's that's. That, I think that's a. That's pretty much all I have about the yeah. mechanics. Apart from I then we're gonna, I can talk a little bit about the uh, the various sites uh, and and equipment that's connected to the LHC.
2: Okay, all right. Um, well, yeah. The uh, when it, when it's working at full strength, it should be able to uh, smash particles up to seven times the amount of force that current um, the current colliders around the world can. Yeah. Um, the uh, you know the in the United States the um, uh, Fermi Lab has the most powerful collider that we have here in this country, and they actually were going to build another one to rival the LHC.
0: Yes, actually, it was going to be larger than the LHC.
2: Yes, however, um, those are expensive, yeah. And uh, the United States eventually donated money to the LHC project, right? Um, so basically, they said, okay, well, we'll just go in with you guys for right now.
0: Yeah, because you know because after it, all it, it, it is a
2: friendly rivalry.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, and I mean ultimately this is all about uncovering more information about the universe, not yeah. about, you know, it's it's not like the space race. It's not a political no. thing. No, no, um, no. Not not to that extent. Not anyway. to that extent. There yeah, there's the uh there's the bragging rights issue oh, sure, Other than sure. that, but working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do.
3: Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove and that was a full episode of my new podcast Straightforward, inspired by Guaranteed Straightforward Pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated AT and T Fiber. Live like a Gaguinian man. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit AT and tcom slash hypergig for details. So,
2: um, so yeah, they they've gone to a, a great deal of uh, effort to, to build this device. Yeah. Um, so, which projects did you want to?
0: Well, I, I was going to mention the the major ones. So, there's uh, like I said, there's the the different collision points, the detector sites. Uh, mm-hmm. The one of the major ones is called. Uh, Atlas. Yes. Mm-hmm. Which stands for a toroidal LHC apparatus. or yes. Atlas. Uh, and that is a, it's a, a measuring device that's about 45 meters long, which is about 147 feet, uh, 25 meters tall, which is 82 feet, mm-hmm. and it weighs about 7,000 tons. And that's an observation station, uh, just, that's probably the biggest one. I, I would say it's the most well known out of the people who have uh, studied uh, the the whole LHC development.
1: Mm-hmm. There's
0: also my favorite is uh, Alice. Yes, the a Large Ion Collider Experiment, or Alice. That's the one that I said. You know, there were there was a, a device specifically designed to uh, look at the collisions of iron ions. Mm-hmm. This is it, and uh, that's specifically to look at conditions that would have been present right after or in the very early stages of the Big Bang yeah so um, yeah that's a uh, uh, you know that's that's the one that, that specifically is about that though the all the stuff references I was making earlier in the episode
2: mm-hmm. then there's CMS which is the uh, compact muon solenoid experiment
0: right and uh, that one can actually generate a magnetic field that's 100 times almost 100 times stronger than the Earth's magnetic field um, powerful stuff. There's the
2: So if your forks suddenly fly across the room and stick to the wall, they got it to work. That's a a joke.
0: The Large Hadron Collider Beauty Detector, which is looking for a beauty quark, which is what you can find on Cindy Crawford's face. She's got a little beauty quark right there above her lip. This is known
2: as LHCB. It's a great
0: Pepsi commercial.
2: Oh, man. This is rapidly devolving.
0: Yeah. All right. No. So beauty quark is one of those... um, those uh, those subatomic fundamental particles that only exists for a fraction of a second. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's the total elastic and diffractive cross-section measurement experiment or totem. Um, that's one of the smaller detectors in the LHC and it uh, measures the size of protons and how effective the LHC actually is. So in other words, this this is really to make sure that the LHC is in fact performing, at uh, at the level that it needs to, so it's it's almost like it's more about the the measuring device than about what it's measuring.
2: Yeah, which is sort of funny because uh, after all this time and all this money and effort that have been spent on it, the uh, the LHC is still not working at full capacity.
0: Well, it's also had a few delays. One of those delays. Del- yeah. There was one delay where I mean, there, you're talking about the most complex machine ever built. Yeah. Right? So it's it's incredibly complicated, which also means there are a lot of different points of failure. And there have been several fairly well-publicized failures when, that the LHC suffered on its way to becoming operational, mm-hmm. like the Death Star. Uh, there were Ewoks. Uh, Ewoks definitely were a problem. No, no, there was... Um, one of them was a there was a leak in the liquid helium uh, system, which led a lot of people to make jokes about scientists speaking in high pitched, squeaky oh, yeah, voices. Of course, but you know, liquid helium, n- I would not recommend inhaling it. No, it would kill you instantly. Uh, uh, maybe not instantly, but it would definitely kill you because you're talking about something that's so cold that it would you know destroy any tissue it came into contact with. Not a pleasant way to go, I would imagine. No. But anyway, liquid helium leak, so they had to repair that to get the magnets working properly. Um, there and was there are
2: tens of thousands of magnets, lots
0: and lots of magnets. Um, n- for the big ones, I think there's nine thousand six hundred, and then there are a bunch of support magnets too, um, magnet schools as well around the whole area. Uh, the um, uh, the the other big failure news story was what we alluded to early in the podcast about – there was a story that uh, something had fouled up some of the instruments for the LHC and and delayed its opening and they They, –
2: They had no idea what it was.
0: They linked it. They they flipped the switch. Yeah, they they linked it to the possibility – apparently a bird dropped some bread, specifically a piece of baguette. Because we're talking about France. And or Switzerland. Uh, and or Switzerland. Uh, so strudel, not to be Germany. Um, so it dropped a piece of baguette down a uh, ventilation shaft, which would eventually ended up gumming up some of the works and causing a uh, mechanical failure, electrical failure, which set back the operational date of the LHC, uh, and created a wonderful, Um, ground for some amazing jokes of course also I mean since the LHC has come online we've heard other funny jokes like the possibility that uh, neutrinos which are particles that have no mass so you remember I was talking about there's some particles that have mass and some that don't neutrinos Mm -hmm. don't have mass so why do neutrinos have no mass while other particles do have mass that's again one of the questions we want to ask Um, Some experiments that are related to CERN seemed to indicate that neutrinos were traveling faster than they should, Mm -hmm. faster than the speed of light. That they were actually arriving at their destination fractions of a second before they should have. And that if this were in fact true, that it would mean that neutrinos could travel faster than the speed of light and would call into question lots of fundamental things we believe about the universe. Uh, While that's still kind of unfolding, uh, it appears that all of that was really more down to some very simple errors Mm -hmm. and that neutrinos, in fact, do not travel faster than the speed of light. This did not stop people from making jokes like, neutrino, knock, knock, who's there? Like that sort of idea. Mm -hmm. The neutrino arrives before the joke does. Um, So... Yeah, so there's a uh, uh, couple of interesting stories about the LHC. There are a lot more of them. I mean there's also the whole story about the people who wanted to sue CERN to keep the LHC from going online because they firmly believed that the uh, the the facility would destroy the Earth if it were turned on, despite the fact that – we should point out LHC is what, – what it's doing is simulating stuff in a laboratory that happens all the time in the universe. Mm-hmm. And the universe is still around. So like like these particles smashing into things at incredible speeds, that happens all the time in the universe. It doesn't happen on the surface of Earth so much because we have a magnetic field and atmosphere that that prevents it from happening. But it happens all the time out in space and we don't see any evidence of that wreaking havoc. So – There's no real difference between it happening out in space and happening in a a lab apart from the fact that it's a controlled environment that we can actually observe. So a lot of the objections that people raised were really – they had no merit. Mm -hmm. And if you thought about it for a few minutes, you realize, wait a minute. If this happens all the time anyway and we're all still around, chances are it's not a big problem so there was there were those stories too which you know ultimately we're still around LHC's been working so yep. it doesn't seem to be a problem plus we've also had other particle accelerators that have been doing work very similar to the LHC for years not at the level of the LHC mm-hmm. but but comparable work so those held no water and there are other LHC stories too that are uh, interesting and amusing Um to varying degrees, depending on how dorky you are. For me, there are a lot of them. <laughs> That's how dorky I am.
2: Well, I'm interested to see what happens when they finally get the machine running at full power.
0: Yeah. Um,
2: they, they, they think they may have found the Higgs boson um, you know, running at approximately half power. And so uh, just imagining what's going to happen when they, they can get it running at, at full strength, they may be able to... to uh, do some confirmation of some of these these things, at least, you know, uh, repeat the experiments and, and get them to uh, to produce similar results. So I, it's it, it'll be interesting. And I think one of the nice things about it is, too, that um, with this device, science has been able to capture a few headlines.
0: Yeah. Because um, well, it, it does it all the time. I, th- I think it's – yeah, I think it's definitely one of the many scientific endeavors that is um, – that's prevalent in the news that has really helped kind of bring I, you know, it's, it's a weird word to use, but sort of a Renaissance and in interest in science because, um, that partnered with some of the space exploration stories we've talked about recently on mm-hmm. the podcast mm-hmm. and just stuff that's recently in the news, uh, I think has really kind of inspired new generations of potential scientists and engineers to really push themselves and, and, and push forward our barriers of knowledge, which is fantastic. Uh, so that's also a huge contribution. I'm, you know, and I, I I forgot the one story that we had talked about before the show that I wanted to mention. The, oh yes, the one bizarre theory that the reason why oh, the LHC right. was failing so many times, or and or the reason why it was so hard to find the Higgs boson was that the Higgs boson itself was some form of sentience was traveling back in time from the future to sabotage the LHC so that we would not be able to discover the Higgs boson. Because were we to discover the Higgs boson, a series of events would unfold that would be so incredibly catastrophic as to bring the entire universe's safety into jeopardy. Or something along those lines. Essentially, it's the story of Terminator 2. (laughs) but done with a Higgs boson in place of Arnold Schwarzenegger? Of course. Mm. I mean, sort of. Which is, and I was telling Chris, like, the more I read about this, the more I could not tell if this was just someone being incredibly tongue-in-cheek silly about it. And just, you know, sort of, well, you know, the reason (laughs) the LHC's had so many problems is probably because blah, 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 blah. Or if it was someone who genuinely believed this bizarre theory. I honestly don't know the answer to that. I'm hoping it's the first case because that's awesome. It's almost like an, it's almost like if Andy Kaufman were a quantum physicist, Yeah. you know, the problem is that this subatomic theoretical particle has traveled from the future and is, is mucking about with all of our works so that we can't find it. (laughs) That sounds like an Andy Kaufman joke to me. Well, and there you go. So anyway, uh, that's kind of the the basis of how the LHC works and what it does and why it's important. And uh, the work that's going on is amazing. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the, uh, the reason why CERN has that grid of computers that we talked about is because the amount of data that the LHC gathers every second is huge.
2: Yeah, basically millions of snapshots of yeah. what's going on.
0: So there has to be this massive network of grid computers there to help decipher what all that data actually means yeah. and to make it meaningful to us. So uh, yeah, it's a phenomenal project that's continuing and uh, I hope that they continue doing great science. I can't wait to see what else comes out of it and whether or not the Higgs boson is in fact – Something we have already discovered, or uh, or perhaps it's something totally different, and our scientific knowledge will expand in ways we did not expect. Which, that's probably the most exciting thing about science. Oh yeah, just finding out that what you thought you knew is wrong, but what is real is even more amazing. Yep, phenomenal stuff. All right, guys, if you have any suggestions for topics that we should tackle here on Tech Stuff, I recommend you do one of two things: you either write yourself a little email, and you put in the two. Techstuff at discovery.com, and then you hit send. Or you can contact us on Facebook and/or Twitter. Our handle on both of those is Techstuff HSW. Chris and I will talk to you again in the past because we're going faster than light!
1: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?
0: Running a business is no cakewalk. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office...
1: with with Zumo Play.